0: For landmark theaters, Rebecca, one of the things that really interests me about the position that they're in is that they're accustomed to playing day and day titles, even though they realize it's not always the, uh, let's say the best conditions for them to do so. But being a circuit focused on specialty in art house cinema to remain competitive, it's something that they've had to adapt to over the years. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor here at Box Office Pro. We have a packed episode today for this special holiday weekend here as the Thanksgiving break approaches, the first normal Thanksgiving break here at the box office for a while. And we've got a number of guests joining us. We've got our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, on the podcast in a little bit to give us a preview of what to expect at the box office. And then in our feature segment, we've got highlights from the State of the Art House webinar that we did in partnership with Spotlight Cinema Networks, this week's sponsor. In that webinar, we had insights from some of the leading art houses and specialty film figures here in the industry, including Paul Serwitz, the president and COO of Landmark Theaters, Tori Baker, the president and CEO of Salt Lake Film Society, Dylan Skolnick, the co-director of Cinema Arts Center, Barbara Twist, the director of partnerships at Vidyat's Foundation, and Barack Epstein the precedent at Aviation Cinemas and the Texas Theater. A packed episode today, but Rebecca, before anything else, can you please share the word from this week's sponsor?
1: Yes, uh, this episode, Daniel, of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Yeah, it was a, a really great conversation, Daniel, and it does very much feel like Thanksgiving. We have a whole bunch of people uh, gathered here around the, the podcast table, um, some of whom we've actually uh, had on the podcast before. So um, if, uh, if anything catches your interest here from any of our panelists, uh, do go back. We have uh, prior episodes on the Texas Theater, Vidiots the Foundation, uh, and Tori Baker of the Salt Lake Film Society.
0: And don't forget Paul Serwitz, who was there uh, talking about landmark uh, theaters when New York City first reopened. Uh, Yeah, a nice uh, gang of characters returning here on our platform and some fantastic insights from your conversation with them, Rebecca, especially right now as we approach that holiday season of a lot of these specialty releases coming out and ongoing concerns about adult driven titles at the box office I hate to say it, that was another concern that occurred at the box office this weekend in North America. But let's start with the good news. Let's start with Ghostbusters Afterlife.
1: Yeah, Ghostbusters Afterlife, um, it opened to 44 million domestically from just around 4,315 locations. Um, That is right around what we expected the film to make. However, it was looking a little bit uh, you know, shaky as we entered into the weekend. Looked like it might come in around the uh the 30 million mark, which would be on the, the lower end of expectations. Uh luckily it it didn't uh, it didn't do that. We got it up to 44 million uh despite somewhat mixed reviews which I really enjoyed the film, so I'm uh, I'm happy people went out to see it.
0: And it looks like audiences also enjoyed it uh, as well. We saw some strong audience scores from Rotten Tomatoes and Combe scores Post-Track Service, and internationally, the film actually did pretty well in its first uh, group of markets, grossing 16 million from its first 31 territories, taking the top spot in the UK with 5.8 million. The top spot in Mexico with 2.4 million and a number one debut in Italy with 1.4 million. A nice little start for the movie. There are still some major markets on the horizon. We've got France and South Korea where it opens on December 1st. Russia and Spain opening on December 2nd. And then later on in 2022 releases in Australia on New Year's Day and in Japan on February 4th. Uh, a good start. I know, Rebecca, you saw this title back at CinemaCon along with many other exhibitors. It also screened at Cine Europe. And you also spoke with the director, Jason Reitman.
1: I did. That's from our Q4 issue. And, and it was a really interesting conversation, if only because Daniel, is, as, as you know, he is the son of director Ivan Reitman, who directed uh, the original Ghostbusters. It was just really neat uh, speaking to him about how he grew up in movie theaters, going to movie theaters with his dad, spending all day there. He really has a has a love of, of exhibition and a love of theaters, as, as evidenced by the fact that uh, he and, and his father Ivan were actually at CinemaCon to uh, to introduce the film.
0: The only filmmaker's present at the at the entire event, uh, I think it went a long way and so did the film's theatrical release strategy, exclusive to theaters, a very solid 44 million here in North America. Great start as we head into next week, but Yes, unfortunately, on the other end of that spectrum, another day and date release on HBO Max from Warner Brothers that grosses under $10 million in its opening weekend. Rebecca, what happened with King Richard?
1: Um, I think what what happened with King Richard is not much. Despite having near perfect audience scores on CinemaScore, ComScores, Post Track, and Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it debuted to only 5.7 million from around 3,300 screens, coming in at fourth place under several holdovers. This makes it the eighth Warner Brothers and HBO Max simultaneous release to open under 10 million. These films that have gone day and date uh, for for Warner Brothers in large part have not had good uh, subsequent weekends. So I think we're probably going to see this one drop a substantial bit, especially as we go uh, into the Thanksgiving weekend where we have a lot more competition uh, for screens and for audiences.
0: And competition that's exclusive to theaters. Very disappointing. But let's look at the audience that did show up to the movies, that just get some information on what might have happened here. A third of the audience for the opening weekend of King Richard was over the age of 50, which makes sense and I think would have happened in in any case. The issue is not enough of them showed up. And I think that's why we ended with this $5.7 million opening weekend. That doesn't mean people didn't see it. That just means maybe a larger percent of that over 50 audience decided to see this at home on HBO Max. And if we decide to expand that look at the demographics 55% of the audience was over the age of 35. So you have a perfect example here of a movie with an adult audience that is just completely derailed at the box office with its availability day and date on a streaming service. A a very unfortunate uh, result, I think, for this movie. And as you know, Rebecca, that second weekend, it just doesn't paint a pretty picture once we see the competition it has in the marketplace.
1: In contrast to that, you have uh, No Time to Die, which was released under theatrical exclusivity, uh, remains theatrically exclusive uh, even into its seventh week in the domestic market. Of course, it was released uh, several weeks earlier in several major international markets, but now it has become the uh, highest grossing Hollywood film of the pandemic, with seven thirty three point nine million, surpassing uh, F nine, which up until this point was the highest worldwide grosser of the year. Uh, at this point, domestically it has earned one hundred and fifty four point five million, again uh, creeping up on five hundred and eighty million overseas. Uh, Daniel, you gotta imagine that the uh, theatrical exclusivity has. Uh, a lot to do with why this film is maintaining such a good hold and has managed to surpass F9, another film with theatrical exclusivity.
0: And both these titles, F9 and No Time to Die, were released by the same studio overseas, Universal, which has really been able to optimize that strategy of getting these movies to audiences around the world. We really have to look at this performance as exemplary when we look at this international distribution model and the challenges that studios and cinemas are facing. Universal now responsible for the two highest grossing Hollywood titles globally since the start of the pandemic. And building on that point, if we look at the splits of how much money these movies made outside of the United States and Canada, we're looking at 79% of the global gross for No Time to Die coming outside of North America and 77% of the global gross of F9 coming outside of the North American market.
1: Daniel, am I the only one flashing back to about a year and a half ago, Trolls World Tour, when Universal was the <laughs> first studio to, uh, to really enemy take number a one. large film? Everyone hated them. And now, yeah. look at us now. Look at you, Universal. They, you did it.
0: They took so much heat for that decision at the time. But since then, they've been able to regroup, make deals with the major chains, And you just have to look back at the way they did their presentation at CinemaCon that that we spoke about in detail, working alongside local cinemas of the talent from these movies and really putting movie theaters up front and center at the heart of their strategy. And it definitely looks like they're doing this internationally, even when domestically they've made decisions like putting Halloween day and date on Peacock that I think really just haven't worked out quite as well.
1: Yeah, And that's something that actually uh, comes up later in this episode in our State of the Art House webinar with Barack Epstein of the Texas Theater, talking about uh, Universal's decisions to uh, go day and date and to, to be flexible with their release models during the pandemic uh, really just helped them to, to get content. But um, speaking of the specialty market, uh, we did have a new release. From A24, that being Come On, Come On, from director Mike Mills. Over the weekend, it came out domestically to 134,000 from only five screens in New York City and Los Angeles for a per theater average of 26,000. $889, um, making it the highest earning platform release since February of 2020. Uh, Daniel, in the specialty market, we really are seeing success in, uh, in films that, A, go theatrically exclusive, and B, have that slow platform rollout.
0: That's absolutely right, Rebecca, because it's such a challenge to have this platform rollout when you've already committed a streaming date three weeks in. It's a huge challenge, but if we just step back and look at how some of these films that have gone platform have performed in these New York and LA markets, we've seen positive signs of life from the specialty box office. We saw that a couple of weeks ago with Sony Pictures Classics and that documentary Julia that last weekend was able to expand and retain its momentum. We've seen that, I think, with Searchlight Pictures, *French Dispatch, that has really been able to hold on to its audience after the first couple of expansions and really stay competitive in that screen count and per-theater averages. A big question I have right now is what's going to happen with Belfast from Focus Features? We were saying good things about Universal a second ago, but this is where we have to sort of look at that 17 to 30 day exclusivity period that they have for certain movies. What's going to happen with this title as it approaches its third weekend? Are we going to have it available? At home, even though it's just finding its audience theatrically? Or is Focus going to have Universal give this movie a little bit more time in theaters before it eventually makes its way to the home?
1: Yeah, it's it's something that I'm I'm definitely interested to see, and I think at this point it's uh it's it's difficult to speculate as to how that's going to shake out. Uh, definitely, this is going to be a, a holiday season, and, and specifically a Thanksgiving weekend uh, that's going to be different from any that we've seen in this industry before. Uh, certainly, a lot better than last year's holiday season, but we are. Uh, by no means are we unaffected right now by the by the pandemic yeah. and the horrible well, years be, that this industry's been through.
0: It'll be at least, at very least, Rebecca. We're going to improve over the terrible 2020 box office results from Thanksgiving weekend. I was looking at those numbers. I think we made around 20 million dollars total across every single cinema in North America for the five day holiday gross in Thanksgiving 2020. As we know, it's one of the most important movie going weekends of the year. And we have our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, joining us today to go into what we can expect from 2021's Thanksgiving box office. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. We've got a big Thanksgiving weekend, hopefully, fingers crossed. The first one in a while, it seems like, after uh, the, uh, the interesting Thanksgiving we went through last year, both at the movies and with our families. Uh, let's start just with with general observations. What are you expecting at the box office here in the U.S. this holiday weekend?
2: Well, like you mentioned, this is uh, it's kind of really getting back into the groove after a two-year break. And in some ways, the movies coming out look like what we would usually get around this time, a big Disney animated movie and a uh, an adult-driven kind of counter-programming drama. And then you kind of have your fanboy action movie in Resident Evil. But, you know, at the end of the day we're we're still kind of at that point where things are not at one hundred percent. Moviegoers are are, I think coming back at in waves. And right now we're in the middle of this process where kids are just now getting vaccinated, And that's going to be a significant consideration for Encanto. Uh, I, I would really be cautious in expecting it to pull the kinds of Disney numbers we used to see over Thanksgiving weekend, which you look back at at Coco uh, three or four years ago earned a little over $50 million just in its three-day weekend. I believe it was over $70 million for its five-day. Uh, th- those numbers are not quite something we're going to be looking at just yet. But it's also that point where, you know, how many kids are vaccinated? How, how much safer do parents feel taking their kids out over the holidays? It's, it's really kind of we're at another one of those weekends where so many options and scenarios are on the table that uh, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out.
1: And uh, Sean, kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum from a family-friendly Disney animated movie, we have *House of Gucci* from director Ridley Scott, a uh, two-plus-hour-long saga of um, Italian craziness and Lady Gaga and um, you know hired murderers. i mean, you know, you're thinking back to the last Ridley Scott film that came out this year, the last Stool, similar historical-based, a long film. Didn't have Lady Gaga, but uh, for all that, it, it really did not perform well at the box office. Are your expectations for House of Gucci better?
2: I think they are a little better. Uh, and I think that's in part because of the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. This, is, this really looking back on it is, you look pre-pandemic, Thanksgiving, Christmas, major holidays are when moviegoers who would only go to the theater once or twice a year anyway, that's when they go. That's when they're with their families. And, you know, this this is kind of a darker movie, so I hesitate to call it a an adult family movie. But it's also, it is one of those movies I could see, you know, your aunts and your uncles going out to see after it's eating. It's a slightly per- more mostly.
1: scandalous version uh, in the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel universe, almost. Guys, right. it's,
0: it's a movie with yeah. people wearing fancy clothes drinking espresso. What is there <laughs> not the love on a cross-quadrant level here?
2: Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. It's high on my list to try and go, go see over the holiday Um and I do think you mentioned Lady Gaga, obviously Ridley Scott, Adam Driver, Jared Leto, Al Pacino. These are names that get butts in seats. I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, even though that star power is different than what it used to be 20 years ago, I think it's still important. And this is, you know, I look back even at something like Knives Out two years ago, obviously a more comedic take. But this big ensemble movie opening over over Thanksgiving, House of Gucci is, is kind of in that position where maybe it can bring back some of the over 35 audience that hasn't come back yet.
1: Then, uh, Sean, definitely not catering to the 35 plus crowd. We have Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, um, which, you know, typical of, of, uh, of this sort of movie, not big stars so much as a franchise IP that they're uh, hoping to draw. In this case, I would imagine uh, younger male viewers in. This is, I believe, the seventh film in the franchise if you if you look on our actually on our website boxofficepro.com, we do have an interview uh, with the director of that film who shares a uh, interesting raccoon story from their quasi COVID <laughs> era uh, rat party. Apparently the raccoons have thoughts on the film. But uh, yeah, I mean John, this is always a, a franchise that's kind of flown under the radar for me. I'm I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it with the video game franchise. It never seems like it's it's become a, a huge earner.
2: I think to your point, it's 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 kind of been one of those, uh, you know, it's been a workhorse type franchise. It, they don't cost two hundred million dollars to produce, so they don't need an audience worth of two hundred million dollars to come out. They've also been strong uh, global players too. I think in this particular case, though, caution's very much warranted because even the final chapter opened a few years ago, its box office was down domestically fairly significantly from the prior movies and this movie essentially wipes the slate clean. I mean, it's, it's a new cast. It's a new director to my understanding. It's, it's a prequel. I think that's why it's welcomed raccoon city. I could be wrong on that. I haven't followed the franchise in a few movies and I, I think really the marketing hasn't been there for this. I've, I've maybe seen this trailer once and in terms of any social media chatter, there's really just, there hasn't been much for this one, but you know, countering to all that, if that loyal, audience that's been turning up for these movies for 20 years still is interested. They'll come out over the weekend. But my, my guess, my bet right now as we're recording this about six days before Thanksgiving, I think this probably ends up third out of the three openers next week.
0: Thank you for those insights, Sean. And you can read our latest coverage of the holiday weekend box office on our website, boxofficepro.com. Now moving on to our feature segment, we've got some great quotes from the State of the Art House webinar that we did with our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks a couple of weeks back. Rebecca, let's get right into it because we've got some interesting insights here.
1: Yeah, Daniel. I mean, one of the real purposes of this webinar is that there had been obviously a a lot of conversation from us and from the rest of the industry on a a lot of different aspects of theatrical recovery, Uh, the timing of it, the pace of it, how our cinemas moving forward going to be affected by shortened windows. And really, those answers vary uh, when you're talking about major chains versus smaller chains versus the art house specialty market. So uh, we really wanted to dive into some of those topics with a specific focus on how the indie scene is doing right now. Um, and one of the things that uh, that we talked about, and you'll hear now from uh, Barack Epstein of the Texas Theater and Paul Sirwit, the president and COO of Landmark Theaters, is that the pace of recovery uh, has really been delayed for the art house market. Uh, that recovery that we saw through uh, throughout the summer with the big films coming out, those really weren't the sort of films that, that did well for the specialty theaters. So as it's been kind of a, a slow comeback throughout uh, the summer and autumn of 2021, it was really interesting to hear from Barack and Paul about, uh, about the pace of that recovery and about what films have been doing well for them.
3: I think arthouse theaters are the ones that are being the most innovative during yes. this time. Uh, because they've done so many things to to figure out how to engage their audiences uh, in in this past couple of years, so you know us at the Texas Theater, we did a big a renovation while we were closed. We built another theater uh, so we could show more movies. And previously, our most of what we do is kind of we call it um, you know event-based cinema. Uh, and when we say event-based cinema, it's not just playing the Nick Cave movie, which we'd like to play, but it, we would have uh, a, a, something live happening. So it's a live performance, a live uh, speech, a, somebody from the movie. So what's been really popular for us uh, for recently is some, a lot of these people who are coming around touring with uh, their films, often with appearances at... Uh, conventions and whatnot, and, and other sorts of tours, uh, we get those people to come to the Texas Theater and, and show a movie. Uh, so just really recently, we had uh, Malcolm McDowell here for a 50th anniversary screening of Clockwork Orange. Oh, nice. Know, 700 people come to that. Uh, just two days ago, we showed Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. Uh, we had Cheryl Lee and Sherilyn Fenn and Harry Goaz. Um, Sold out crowd for that. So when we bring in the people to see the films that they want to see with the people talking with after them, it's that's really whatever our our signature thing and and what we go with. But now that we have this second screen, we do that in conjunction with playing mainstream films, uh, which we used to not be able to do because we couldn't do runs of them. So now we're starting that the one that's done the best for us has been uh, green night, uh, as just a regular first friend movie. Uh, and we were able to tie that in with some, some local ties. Uh, filmmaker David Lowry lives in Dallas. So, um, so even though it was, wasn't shot here, uh, people wanted to see it around here. I you wanted to see it everywhere, but, uh, it did help us a bit.
1: Well, Paul, with Landmark, obviously there's a mix of, uh, you know, from biggest budget to smallest budget. You're not just beholden to one type of film. So across the spectrum there, what have you seen audiences come back to a movie theater for the first time in a year to see? Right.
4: Well, first of all, I'll second what Barack said. We've, you know, we've tried to tap into Q&As and personal appearances, introductions as much as possible. And that's that's been a big driver to get a lot of people back into theaters it's helped smaller movies that otherwise didn't have a great theatrical life but i think that's that's part those kinds of uh, special events and personal appearances really do help drive some audiences back because it's something out of the ordinary and you can't get it at home and you can't get it in general at movie theaters so that's been a that's been a big piece for us and we continue to pursue that as much as we can to help be part of that restart of the business for us, you know, we are a hybrid circuit, although we lean heavily to the specialty side. It's been sort of like two windows. Uh, you know, the commercial mainstream side really started to bounce back in April and certainly with Memorial Day and through the summer, but not being the f- most fertile ground for specialty in the summer quarter. It was a struggle on that side. And, and the core art houses really struggled for a while, even though there was volume of content. So much of it was playing day and date that it, you know, it certainly undermined the theatrical runs, but there's been a slow incremental increase. And, uh, you know, obviously of late French dispatch has been the big breakthrough title. It's exactly what we needed and hoped it would be to sort of break the ice for the specialty side and those audiences much the way Godzilla did six months, seven months ago. Admittedly, the bar has been low. Um, It's taken a, a longer period of time for, uh, the older adults, art, specialty audience to really start coming back in big, in any significant numbers. But pictures like Green Knight that Brock mentioned, uh, Roadrunner was certainly the high point of the summer for us. Uh, that was the certainly the, in the, the indie release that had the most traction. Pig was pretty good. We had titles like Zola, Summer of Soul that were, you know, better than most for sure, but not nearly what we'd hoped they'd be when they were being released card counter was one of the better titles we've had, but all of it, you know, really by comparison to a French dispatch or some of the pictures coming uh, now that we see audiences starting to come back and some momentum building um, have been pretty small. So,
0: you know, we're, we're certainly headed in the right direction. And those are some great insights from Barack and Paul on some of the challenges, some of the opportunities that are facing specialty exhibition in the weeks and months ahead for landmark theaters, Rebecca, one of the things that really interests me about the position that they're in is that they're accustomed to playing day and day titles, even though they realize it's not always the, uh, let's say the best conditions for them to do so. But being a circuit focused on specialty in house cinema to remain competitive and keep on engaging with those audiences, it's something that they've had to adapt to over the years. So I wanted to bring in some of those insights from Paul Sirwitz over at Landmark on the topic and a couple of additional comments from Dylan Skolnick from the Cinema Arts Center. Dylan also does programming for other art house cinemas and his perspective as a programmer, I think, is very relevant here as well. I don't think it would have ever been any
4: exhibitor's choice, big or small, uh, to see windows getting shortened, much less day and date availability and it has it has compromised the theatrical business is no question about it however the reality is it's here to stay and streaming is a uh, is the 800 pound gorilla and covid you know just amplified that exponentially uh, at home consumption you know obviously has become a, a much bigger thing and even post covid it it remains that and the volume and quality of the content that's available at home is a real challenge so Landmark, you know, we just felt like we it had to be embraced in order to uh, meet that challenge and and work with it as best we could and hope really that distributors certainly beyond the streamers themselves see that ultimately a theatrical window is the most valuable pathway for a film's lifeline and I think we've seen examples of that over the last six months both on the mainstream side and on the uh, specialty side. And where it goes from here, I don't know, but we've certainly embraced the streamers and the day and date situation to an extent. Uh, There's too much good content not to play theatrically and try to tap into that audience that, you know, still will get out of the home and go see a movie, uh, you know, a, a film in a theater instead of in their living room.
5: This has sort of been going on somewhat for a while. I mean, Art Houses mm-hmm. actually were earlier in, in booking films that were VOD or streaming, uh, you know, taking some Netflix titles uh, long before the, the pandemic. So this is something we've been kind of wrestling with and dealing with for a while. I mean, it clearly, you know, is is not good for us when it's day and date. It would be great if we could have long windows back again, but that's, you know, that's gone. So it's just a matter of you know picking and choosing, I think, for theaters, especially you know with the streaming services. Now they're putting out more titles. It's you know choosing which ones work for us and which ones don't, you know, and being really selective about that. Of course, you know some of these streaming releases. Also, it's important to remember are so minimal that uh, they barely qualify as uh, an actual theatrical release. Uh, as you mentioned, I work with a number of theaters around the country, including several in Oklahoma. And uh, there's been a number of titles where the streamers just decided that Oklahoma was not part of a theatrical release in the United States, you know, but that's because, you know, they're really, they're trying to have a theatrical release without, you know, at at the minute, tiniest possible level, uh, you know, probably just to say that they got it and partly to kind of assuage the egos of uh, whatever filmmaker uh, was involved Mm -hmm. that, oh, your film got a theatrical release. Yeah, one of those films that didn't play in Oklahoma was, for example, was Coda. That was uh, uh, we certainly asked well, for it. A, it, of it won a huge
1: award at Sundance. It was like the big, the biggest Sundance acquisition.
5: Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, uh, I forgot the exact term they used. You know, they, they they just create new terms. This one was like it's just not a essential market or something like that.
1: I mean, I've never, yeah. I've never been to Oklahoma, but on behalf of people who live in Oklahoma, Dude, I don't, that I seems don't think Coda
3: played ridiculous. in Dallas either. Or if it did, it played like in the in a four wall in suburbs. Like it, I it didn't. It did, wasn't really released. I mean, Paul, yeah, Apple was
4: not. Apple was not. They had a, a a very limited outlook on what they wanted to get done theatrically on Coda, and they've been less proactive theatrically than Amazon, Netflix and you know the, the fact of the matter is you've got several titles over the next you know couple of months that have lofty award aspirations from the, from those key streamers Netflix and Amazon high quality films that will have a sh- very short truncated window but they want to have some kind of theatrical presence it helps their publicity it helps press it helps it obviously deals with the filmmakers but The fact of the matter is Netflix and Amazon, as examples, are attracting, you know, top shelf, incredible filmmakers like Jane Campion and Power of the Dog from Netflix. And, you know, they've got Netflix also has Don't Look Up from Adam McKay. And Amazon's got Tender Bar from George Clooney and uh, Sorkin being the Ricardos. These are all major movies, high quality films that have big award aspirations.
1: Yeah, Daniel, when movies from streamers like Netflix, like Amazon, you know, do have those awards aspirations, uh, you know, something really interesting came up in this conversation, uh, specifically with Tori Baker of the Salt Lake Film Society and Barbara Twist of the Vidiots Foundation, speaking about the value proposition that arthouse cinemas bring to the table and how it goes beyond just the fact that uh, people come to see the specialty movie maybe at an art house theater. Um, it's speaks to the the cultural cachet and the influence, really, uh, that an art house cinema has in their community uh, to really make this audience aware of some of the films that are coming out that otherwise might just completely pass them by.
6: When it comes to this topic, I really think that what's important and per- what's definitely different about the art houses is that it's about the value proposition and what we're providing as an art house. And I really find the the vernacular interesting because streaming is is such a a great visual to what is really happening with what people like to say is content out in the world. And I I really dislike using the word content surrounding film. No. Yeah, because content's anything from my daughter's five second TikTok all the way up through YouTube videos to a movie now, right? And it's really incumbent upon us in the art house industry to differentiate what is worthy of time. And if if I had any concern about streaming and why I think that's such an interesting visual is because it really is this rapid stream. I mean, I'm from the mountains. You see these just these spring streams come down and they're just rolling and you can dip your hands in and you may or may not get something that's worthy of your time. And then there's the rare things that maybe rise to the top but that's happening less and less. There's not really a zeitgeist happening around one particular film and that doesn't mean the industry can't kind of go and try and find their avenue for their award or what not, But re- the reality is, is Netflix, e- even when they're trying to get an award, they still just want to promote the next and the next and the next. Yeah. And it's about quantity and not quality. And where art houses can differentiate themselves in that universe in the future, whether it's a digital screen or whether it's their bricks and mortar screen, is that we're the curators. We know what the artists are making. We're bringing the artists to talk to you about this art form, about the movies, about film, about storytelling that happens within that two-hour time frame, not, not some sort of extended thing where I can turn it on, turn it off. So I think that that's the real important sort of value proposition that we offer regardless of the title. And the more that we curate, the more people trust us and, and everybody wants to get off the couch at some point. Right. So at the point that they want to get off the couch and go do something, whether it's a date night, just, a, you know, an evening out or just sick of being in the house, you need to be a viable option for them to come and see something that is worthy of the quality to make that effort.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that there I don't even know how many films come out on Netflix in a week. It's, it's so many and most of them just kind of disappear in a few days, even if they're good and even if they get good notices. Given that given how uh, connected and, and influential and respected art houses can be in their communities like if you're screening it that means something like even if they needs. watch it online, I mean that's a that's mm-hmm. a value
6: proposition where they'll continue to be a donor, for example, a subscriber mm-hmm. at five dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month, whatever that looks like to them. They might still only go to ten movies a year or twelve movies a year on mm-hmm. average, right? But but if you if they see that Melancholia plays in your cinema, you're validating that in a way that gives them that curation. It's starting to tell them the story about what in cinema is worthy of my time because the stream is just too rapid. It's too big and there's too many
7: options. To go off what Tori was saying about the value proposition and what speaks to this is something that I'm not sure we'll ever be able to quantify, but I'm quite certain has a significant impact is the the inherent marketing the that an art house does for a title. And so we talk of like the long tail and the, the sort of economic impact of shortening a theatrical window and the amount of like marketing newsletters, you know, social media, et cetera, et cetera, that an art house, the number of times a trailer is showing up on screen. And even as Tori was saying, even if that person doesn't end up buying the ticket to see that film at the Broadway, they later on down the road, when it's on Netflix or when it's on Comcast, mm-hmm. Spectrum, whatever, and they buy like, it, oh, my theater, part my of the theater reason they're that. doing it is because of that art house. And that is both the power of establishing a, curati- a curatorial relationship, you know, a trust, a curatorial trust with your community, but also the impact of a movie theater. I mean, there's no question that the marketing surrounding a theatrical release is always going to surpass the marketing surrounding a streaming drop. Like it's just, it doesn't matter how many mm-hmm. billboards you buy, the number of people that the art house community is connected to and like triggers out to. And then you think about how many, like my aunt is talking to all of her friends about what they should see. And maybe my aunt's the one person on the mailing list for the cinema, but she's telling everyone else. And I, I so desperately wish there was a way that we could quantify that because that is what these studios are giving up that is what Mm -hmm. these are the types of things that they're giving up when they trade for money next quarter for their shareholders. They're trading the possibility of way more money down the line Mm -hmm. and more importantly, a stronger relationship with an audience that is going to return to see more of their films because of the work being done Mm -hmm. by the art house.
0: And that was Tori Baker and Barbara Twist, speaking on some of those challenges that they're facing with this new paradigm in specialty exhibition. But another point that I think really came through that discussion you had with the panel, Rebecca, was that even though there are tensions there, it doesn't make sense to portray these relationships as something that is dysfunctional and not working. (laughs) There's always been a tension between exhibition and distribution. There always will be, but that comes with the business. And I think at the heart of it, the relationship with these companies, with these streaming companies is positive. What they have to work on and fine tune is just a better and easier way of doing business together. And that's something that Dylan was able to go into in more detail during the conversation.
5: People working at the streamers are very nice. I mean, I've got, we have great relationships with almost all of them. They don't think what we do is really an important part of what they do, which is is okay. I mean, I just want to pick up on something that Tori was saying. I mean, that what we do is so incredibly different. I mean, she was likening the streaming to like a, a mountain stream but it's more like a fire hose uh, spewing out a, a, a torrent of water of questionable quality, mixed quality, some great stuff, some, you know, polluted stuff, whatever. Um, whereas, you know, what we do, it's like more like a mountain spring, you know, it's like, it's coming mm-hmm. out and it's not, not that much, but it's, you know, it's really pure and try we try to make it the best we possibly can. So, that's, you know, talking about what, you know, comparing the two is very different. And then just to come back to what Rebecca and you were asking before you know, one of one of actually the, the advantages we have with working with like a Netflix or an Amazon is because they, on a certain level, don't care. You know, uh, there there are very few restrictions. I mean, yeah, we we play. You know, sometimes you play these films for one week and you tell them it's out at one, you know, one week and out, and they go, oh, thanks. Landmark. Yeah. I would
1: imagine that's not the case you for take out,
5: you. take out a show. Uh, you take out a show for a special event, and you don't get a temper tantrum. Uh, you know, all these things you know, have been, have made playing their films much, much easier. You know, lastly, like a theater I have, it's working only four days a week at the moment. Sure, you can open our film right on the break, no problem. So there are, you know, there there has, there is greater flexibility, and I want to give them credit for that.
4: There is, and, and it's, it's, streamers have a, an array of purpose around theatrical releases, the least of which really is generating box office revenue. It serves a lot of other purposes for the Relationships with the filmmakers, attracting other filmmakers, keeping filmmakers, using that exposure really as a marketing tool, and and you know it's it's not really about the box office. They'd like to see box office, but they're not marketing their films in such a way, nor are they providing enough of a window for a, a theatrical release to really generate revenue.
3: During the pandemic, we. Like, lots of people moved to showing movies in our parking lot or outdoors, Mm. whatever. So we ran uh, digital cinema in our parking lot and on an inflatable screen. We wheeled out a a small Christie out there and ran power. And what that let us do, because we were doing DCP, was I started talking to uh, studios that I'd never talked to before, namely, like, Universal and Focus. I'd never booked a Universal or Focus movie non-repertory before, ever. And because they were releasing movies with Windows and even whatever, they, were just ha- they had a lot of movies that came out last year. I looked at them and I started talking to them. And I, I pretty much played all the Universal Focus movies in our parking lot. Like, I mean, I, we, we, like, like you guys were saying, flexibility on the break. I mean, we played Promising Young Woman just like one show. And they're like, good. And uh, nice. then I kept playing it because we kept selling out. So we ended up making like, I don't know, five grand on it just on like a few handful of shows, which wasn't bad during the world being ended. Uh, but then we we started playing, uh, once we opened Inside, we started playing more universal and focused movies Inside. Uh, so, so that basically uh, started a whole new uh, relationship for our theater uh, on those kinds of movies. And now, you know, we played Halloween, we played Candyman, we played Card Reader, played Last Night in Soho.
1: And, you know, Daniel, those are some really uh, great insights on the evolving relationship between uh, this art house specialty market and streamers like Netflix, like Amazon. You know, these are topics that, that are going to have a large impact on the specialty market. Even as we move uh, past the pandemic into a post-COVID atmosphere, uh, unfortunately, of course, as you know, as our listeners know, we are not there yet. Um, the art house market, as we spoke about earlier in this episode, has really been affected by the fact that uh, older demographics are not yet coming back to cinemas at the same pace as their younger counterparts, which is really affecting some of the grossest. Of, of a lot of these art house films. So really what it's causing some of these art house theaters to do is uh, is really dive deep and think of new ways to bring in different demographics to their theaters. Um, it's something obviously that a lot of these these cinemas and a lot of these chains, thought about before the pandemic, you always wanna make sure that your theater is uh, open and friendly to different groups of people. But uh, now with the pandemic, there really has been a new sense of urgency around uh, bringing in not just younger audiences, uh, but audiences from uh, different gender and and racial demographics. Uh, And and that was something that we really had some some good insight uh, on from some of the people in this panel, starting with Tori Baker.
6: Well, this topic comes up a lot right now, obviously. And I think the art houses, number one, have always sort of had diverse content, if you'd say the word mm-hmm. film, you know, I'd rather, but <laughs> have ad, always had diverse programs mm-hmm. that invite different communities. I think the challenge that we've always had is that we might appear a little too edified or unwelcoming as a group mm-hmm. in that we are the cinephiles and we know what film is. And that is not welcoming. So what we have done here at the Film society is we have five cultural tours and those cultural tours from the Pacific Island film tour to our film Mexico tour, which will happen next week. We did not demand that the community come. We did not say these are the best of Mexican cinema happening right now. These are the best Pacific Island films being made, but we created a task force from those communities that tell us what their community needs are. And the only way that you're really going to diversify your audiences if you're meeting the needs of different communities. You can't be the one that's curating and saying that you know best and you hope they show up just because you market to them.
1: Yeah, I know so, film, and this is good film, and if they exactly. don't show up, then...
6: <laughs> We've you know you have to say you know in and every community in the, in the United States is even slightly different. We have a Jewish film tour and that you know here in Salt Lake City, our Jewish community says, you know we are not interested in exhibiting films from the Holocaust. It's not something that it's something that we feel like we're boxed in about. but there are other communities that I've heard their Jewish communities do want to see Holocaust films. So every individual, community that you work with is also regional and different depending on where you live and the experiences that they have, that they need their stories told in a particular way. And it's your job as an art house to find those films and to curate for them, but not to be the one that pre-curates and says, please come. So that's, I think, the only way to diversify your your welcoming and inclusion in your bricks and mortar space.
1: And Paul, with Landmark being obviously a, a larger chain that's not, you know, one one community, um, what are your thoughts on getting in younger audiences and diverse audiences to your theaters?
4: Our group of theaters really vary in their demographic draws. Some some areas in theaters really do skew more mature and older. Others have a younger draw. Uh, so it's a mixed bag for us. But, you know, we obviously want to try to find ways to expand the younger audience because they are the biggest drivers right now in returning to theaters. And we knew from the beginning of COVID that the older audience was going to be the most, the slowest and most have the most trepidation of returning. I believe that they are really starting to show up now, but there's still a great need to diversify the audience. So, you know, it starts with the the film, you know, the film has its inherent appeal Maybe younger, maybe older, maybe a combination, but it really starts with that. Beyond that, it's, it's marketing, it's social media, it's alternative content programming. You know, Some of the best alternative content we've had in in the recent, in recent months have skewed younger. Bo Burnham uh, was huge for us. Some of the music alternative content, to Tom Petty programming, The Doors Live at the Bowl, Oasis. We're getting back to programming one-offs with Rocky Horror Picture Show and The Room. Those are all things that help drive a younger audience, and you know we're we're trying to do more of that to expand the audience.
0: And that was Paul Serwitz, the president and COO of Landmark Theaters. A big thanks to Paul and all of the other panelists in the State of the Art House webinar hosted by Box Office Pro in partnership with Spotlight Cinema Networks. And thank you again for listening to this week's episode of our podcast. The Box Office podcast is produced by Box Office Pro, the box office company and Record Edit podcast. Please listen to us again next week with another new episode, bringing you the latest from Theatrical Exhibition and the global box office.